I think what we're really missing though is the infrastructure piece. Over 50% of most banks are doing COBOL programming. What that means is they're just old systems that they're trapped in these contracts and they're not gonna be able to innovate enough. They're not gonna be able to create interesting products that ultimately serve the end consumer. And it's not just about speed, it's about can you access data sets that are interesting? Can you access relevant data sets across other platforms that are interesting? Then financial services become cheaper. They become transparent. They become customized in a way that a lot of the folks that are left out just aren't even part of that equation. Hey everyone, it's Julie Verhage-Greenberg here with your Tux Time podcast from FinTech Today, where we talk about all things FinTech. In today's episode, I am joined by Emmalyn Shaw, founder and managing partner at Flourish Ventures, which has invested in a number of FinTech companies that we, we know on this podcast, like Chime, Jetty, and a number of others. Emmalyn, it's great to have you today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so before we we dive too deep into here, you know, you you've been in VC for a while, in, especially in in the fintech space. What you know, what has been the biggest surprise to you over the past couple of years with with COVID going on and everything, and the system really it just feels like we've covered like ten years worth of innovation and and stuff in a matter of two years. <laughs> <laughs> so true. No, I mean it's just been incredible. We've you know, I think one thing we have been excited about is, you know, as difficult as COVID's been for the world, it really has, as at least as a fintech industry, really been incredible in terms of in driving folks to use digital products, to trust digital products, to engage deeply in ways that we just haven't historically. And I think that that forcing function has really then driven innovation and a desire to keep up with the demands and the needs of a really, you know, a much more remote um, set, set of interactions. Uh, and I think that's certainly driving a number of the folks that were very early on kind of seeking to digitize and disrupt a number of facets of the financial services industry. And so it's been, certainly as an investor in the space, it's been wonderful to kind of really see that validated. Um, as an investor specifically in, and we'll talk a little bit more, I'm sure at some point around, you know, looking at folks that are in the low to medium income uh, populations that are our mass market, 70% of US Americans living paycheck to paycheck, for example, you know, they were particularly hardest hit during COVID. And what was wonderful to see is the number of uh, fintech companies that came together through a myriad of different solutions to really actually address the needs of those consumers and ultimately really help um, sustain them through a difficult time. So it's just been great. And then certainly, you know, gosh, the the investing side's been on fire, uh, as has has the liquidity options, right? With, you know, yes, the SPAC market softened a bit now, but there was, you know, quite quite a strong movement along that dimension, a lot of growth in the later stage plays. Um, so you've started to really, uh, across the world, and not just in the U.S., so to really see that momentum also driving uh, more innovation has been really exciting. Yeah, I mean, it, there's just been so much going on. I'm sure that you guys have been extremely busy and, uh, you know, every deal is very competitive. You're getting tons of deals on your desk. Um, it, 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 do you expect that to slow down at all in 2022? Stay the same? Get even busier? You know, how are you kind of anticipating things to play out? <laughs> well, I, you know, we're, we're fortunate to be partnered with so many great companies, and that has certainly helped serve us in terms of seeing, continuing to see great innovation. I expect that will to continue. I mean, certainly, again, as we just discussed, the market conditions are driving the demand. Um, the innovators are out there willing to take those kind of risks to be able to really disrupt the industry. And so I think um, coupled with the, both the supply of dollars and then just the 
um, incredible uh, technology innovation that's going on is managed to be quite high. I, th I think what we are going to see, though, um, and you know, at some point, right, these these markets get frothy and then they ultimately do correct. And I've been in venture since 2000, so I've seen a couple of them. Um, you know, I do think there's going to be a real strong flight to quality, um, and you're starting to see that certainly even in the last year. And it's going to be incumbent upon investors and entrepreneurs to think about really sticking to their themes, really sticking to the mission that they want to create, uh, and really through that, then finding the highest quality companies um, and and teams that are that are being built against really specific problems that we're hoping to to see uh, you know evolve in the industry. Uh, and so that I will expect to see more of. Um, a lot more clamoring for for probably the darlings, um, even more so than you have seen in the past couple of years, because that flight to quality is going to be so pronounced. You know, you mentioned something that I've been thinking about a lot lately too, and it's that we have so many really strong teams out there now. And part of it's just because some of these fintechs like Stripe and others that have been around for a number of years, whether public or private, um, they, there are people that were senior there that are now leaving to do their own startups too, that, you know, it's really strong teams. We've seen folks from Plaid even, which is obviously not public, but is, is a very strong private sector company. Uh, what, what are you seeing in that, in that trend? Absolutely. I mean, look, I, I think that there's been a number of there's been wealth creation that has allowed a lot of these uh, entrepreneurs to take that leap of faith. There's been a lot of validation. So you, you mentioned Plaid, but Plaid's a great example of, you know, look, what they proved was you could take an industry around data and you could take the next generation and do it better. You know, Yodely did a great job and they certainly validated that there was a need and a real opportunity. But Plaid really demonstrated that broad-based use application. And then that just opened the eyes of, well, gosh, if we can do this, what are all the other infrastructure and enablement layers to embed financial services that we can unlock? And that has like lent itself to such a broad range of entrepreneurial endeavors, some of whom come from the, the, that world, and they're much better positioned to do it, quite frankly, just given their know-how, and others just really seeing that as a validation point. So, and we're seeing that pretty much, to your point, across every single one of these um, successful businesses that have really developed and grown some strong um, young entrepreneurs over a very short period of time during hypergrowth that they can really then apply towards startups in the ecosystem. You mentioned this earlier, the the low to moderate income folks and how they've been impacted so much during COVID. And it does feel like a lot of the first wave of fintech was focused on making things better for either these folks or for millennials. But if you look at data around like the wealth gap, around like living paycheck to paycheck, it doesn't seem like things have improved that much and that we still have a ton of work to do. How are you guys thinking about investing in that space moving forward? Because I know that this is something that you're very passionate about. Yeah. So, you know, we we view our, we take more of a top-down view. We, we know what we care about, right? We want to see solutions, technology, both direct-to-consumer as well as infrastructure-related solutions that ultimately help drive financial health and economic resilience. That's kind of the top line thinking. And then against that's like what sectors do we think have the greatest capacity for impact, which is what led us to doing all of our challenger banks starting early, as you mentioned, with Chime. We've got eight challenger banks globally, as an example. Um, and so we set, we take that same approach. You know, you'd mentioned Jetty earlier. Jetty is a good one where, you know, on the if we, embedded finance is a, is a really important part of the sector we care about. We think about platforms as well as enablement layers. On the platform side, we thought about, well, what, what do people, what are people's greatest asset? Um, housing is a really critical asset, right? Um, being able to live in your apartment, stay in your homes. And so against that, 
what are the types of technology interventions using financial services that could really facilitate that? And then how do you align it with stakeholders that have deep pockets that fundamentally care about that, right? Because if they're already struggling, are they the ones you really want to rely solely on monetization? No, you want to rely on property managers, right, for whom it's in their interest to keep these folks also in their homes. And so once you can align those factors, then you have both a massively large business that you can bet on from a venture perspective and an impactful one, right? So we take really a, a thoughtful, like we embedded finance or insure tech, and then we think about against that context, what are the, what are the innovations that are going to best benefit the target set of demographics we care about. I mean, and obviously it goes without saying, Trime was a good one where they've been staying to their core knitting, right? They've, they've always targeted that audience. And it's a massive 70% of Americans, it's a huge market, right? <laughs> um, and then they did it really well because they knew who their target audience was. And they were able to develop, you know, secured credit and overdraft protection and a number of other pieces that were very um, uh, important to that consumer. So, uh, that's generally how we've taken our thesis and approached it across uh, financial services. What do you think the next wave of that looks like? Like what other things like features and, and elsewhere um, can companies iterate on to make it so that, you know, we do start to truly improve the, the financial picture for people that, uh, you know, might not have seen much of a bump quite yet? So, you know, it's interesting. I think that you're going to continue to see a lot of, there's a lot of direct-to-consumer models that are t attempting through various, a variety of wedges to help consumers along. And we've made a number of plays along that dimension that I think are going to evolve and continue to be very, um, to, to be successful. I think what we're really missing though, and it goes a little bit to some of the Plaid conversations, is the infrastructure piece. So we're relying at the end of the day on some pretty legacy infrastructure. And if you think about even kind of traditional banks, the core infrastructure, you know, the Jack Henry, Fiserv's, FISs of the world, you know, have been around for a very long time. Over 50% of most banks are doing cobalt programming, which fundamentally what that means is they're just old systems that they're trapped in these contracts and they're not going to be able to, to innovate enough. They're not going to be able to create interesting products that ultimately serve the end consumer. And it's not just about speed. It's about can you access data sets that are interesting? Can you access relevant data sets across other platforms that are interesting that then financial services become cheaper? They become transparent. They become customized in a way that a lot of the folks that are left out just aren't even part of that equation, right? And so in a lot, I still really think the plumbing is where we need to do more work now because I think that's what's really going to have that catalytic opportunity to unlock a lot more services, um, and so, you know, we're looking at a bunch of different things, including um, the enablement layers I mentioned before. I, I think you may have seen we're in unit, and I think they've done a great job kind of providing on behalf of um, uh, non-fintech and fintech platforms, for that matter, kind of checking and ultimately card and ultimately lending kinds of products. The same thing with insurance. Like insurance as a service needs to be there. And it's not just, you know, giving an assurance product that we already know about at the right time on a new platform. It's actually about creating new insurance products, right? It's about creating insurance products that don't exist today that with additional data sets that they can unlock through more of this interesting real-time cloud-based types of um, uh, infrastructure that then we can actually provide relevant insurance products that actually help support the resilience of these consumers, right? Um, and they might be something as simple as kind of a pay-as-you-go, right, against pre-existing sets, but it might be more specialty types of insurance products that are really relevant to that use case. Um, and you're just starting to see a little bit of that take place, but that's another area that's really exciting. So, you know, it's, we, we really think this kind of more nuanced 
unlocking of the infrastructure is going to be pretty critical in being able to kind of see what we think will be the next generation of, to your point, of, of products that are really going to serve a much broader base than they do today. What role do you think crypto, DeFi, Web3, all of these buzzwords are going to play in you know modernizing this fintech infrastructure, embedded finance, and sort of where we go from here? Because I think... It, I've recently asked a number of people what the thing that surprised them most in 2021 was. And, you know, it, it's a tough call because there's a lot of things that surprised <laughs> us this year. But I think the crazy rise in DeFi is one of the top ones. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, look, I think I think it's absolutely going to catalyze and force a lot more innovation than maybe historically hasn't because there is so much demand um, for integrating, you know, really cross-pollinating what we think the DeFi and CeFi world is going to look like, right? And and there's no doubt in our minds, it'll be a little different in emerging markets. I think that's going to be slower to take, although there's a lot more receptivity, quite frankly, and probably a lot more flexibility on the regulatory side to actually make something happen more quickly. Um, but I do think at the end of the day, we're going to find a world where they're going to coexist. And so, and, and in that coexistence, they're going to have to be able to stay up to speed. They're going to be have to want to modernize so they can keep up because otherwise people will just shift to a much more broader access decentralized world if they can't maintain some of this, the, um, their footing on the technical side. Um, when we think about investments, I think we think more around um, the, the infrastructure around DeFi, right? So we think about, okay, what are, what are some of the core integration opportunities for that coexistence? Because that's going to be really important, right? To be able to kind of live and truly operate across, you know, you want to remit payments using an exchange to a family member, but you also still want to pay your mortgage on your core bank account. And like, and that ability to kind of really seamlessly tr um, transact across those are going to be pretty important. So that plumbing there. Um, we also think like regulation. So I, I know you've had our friends at Alloy over. So we're in a bunch of reg tech companies, Alloy and Hummingbird and others. And, and that's going to play out again in the DeFi world. So thinking about what does that version of, you know, reg tech look like within the DeFi construct? Um, and same thing, probably most importantly with identity. Um, because I think that's going to be a pretty important part, given how decentralized it is and how um, accessible it is. How do we ensure that they are, in fact, who they say they are in the context of that um, environment? So that's a, those are the areas that we get most excited about specifically as we move into what I think is absolutely inevitable, to your point. How much is transferable right now from what's been built at these companies that are doing reg tech, KYC, data, everything to a decentralized platform from what we have today? You know, I think a number of them are, um, for sure. I mean, even Hummingbird, you know, it has a number of Coinbase and a number of other um, customers that they already serve. And so to be able, they're already in the world and they're already kind of playing in. And so it's a question of just being honestly focused and really thinking about, okay, in this context, in this world of um, coexistence, what role can we play so that we can actually transcend both? Um, but I do, I do think they're they're pretty well positioned. Um, but I, again, I think it's going to take a very deliberate set of uh, focus. And and look, we're we're kind of in the to your point, we're in the very early innings of what this technology could look like and what it should look like. And so it's very possible that a pure play is going to have to emerge specifically in this ecosystem, which I I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I would, in fact, I would expect. Yeah, I feel like I've already seen a few uh, a few articles on CoinDesk and others on these smaller startups coming out of stealth and and focusing yeah. on this very problem. So I think that'll yep. be a big theme in in 2022 for sure. Um, something else that you you've mentioned is insure tech, 
And I feel like this is one where a lot of people are bearish on the sector, just given that, you know, it's old, stodgy, and a lot of insure tech companies that have gone public haven't done as well. But I love a good contrarian view, and I feel like you're more bullish than most. <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, and I understand why they're not, right? I mean, let's let's be clear. Let, I mean, let's talk a little bit about what's what's gone wrong, right? If you think about um, InsureTech distributions where most of the money's been to date, and if you think about the distribution plays, particularly those who have gone public recently, you know, the unit economics are still really unproven, right? And that's really what's happening. That's why they're getting so hammered in the market. You've got, you know, they're looking at, you know, the mobile first direct, direct consumer distribution and they want the products to have higher premium to support the LTV to CAC and they want them typically to be over 3x right just as an just a kind of as a as a baseline and what they're seeing is like companies like lemonade and root they're below 1 right i mean these are like core you can't cover your LTV to CAC if you think about that in the highest level that's a problem right and then you start thinking about loss ratios in insurtech in particular and you've got like hippo at 121 you know and then you've got root at 100 Right, I mean, and these are these are high percentage loss ratios. So unless they can start to showcase that these these underlying dimensions are working, um, I think it's it's that's the reason we're getting so hammered. Now there are companies, uh, and I you know, Kin's one of them, one of our portfolio companies, who's actually done an exceptional job. They're maniacally focused on catastrophic home, um, but their but their both their loss rates have been great. Their LTV to CAC is very strong. Um, Six seven right like really uh, you know quite competitive and I think so you are seeing it but you just have to see more of them really prove out some of those those fundamentals where I think there's more opportunity is kind of where it actually has not been underinvested to date right and so that's really in the underwriting part right so you see and and you're, you've probably seen a lot of innovation I think they're just still very early in proving out the AI applicability and the use of alternative data sets within InsureTech um, one company that we're in. Uh, is targeting the industrial worker and they use sensors to kind of determine, optimize workforce safety. And why that matters is they're trying to, and have already demonstrated, reducing the $3.5 trillion that was spent in workplace injuries, right? So that's really addressing the workers' comp problem. And they've been able to amass significant data through Walmart and a number of other customers already on what is kind of, how do you assess workplace risk? How do you optimize for workplace risk? How do you ultimately change the actuarial equations as it relates to workers' comp? And those are the types of things I think we're still in the super early stages of trying to figure out is how do you use sensor data? How do you use other alternative data sets to actually change the calculation? And so that's super early. And, and I think that's like just huge opportunity there. And then the other, and I'm sure, again, there's still, there's work here, but it, it hasn't been done in any meaningful way is around kind of the claims piece, right? The workflow, reimagining what does a claims process even look like? Because it's such a big part of InsureTech's process and it's such a costly one and it impacts the end consumer. So to reimagine that all together, you know, yes, you could use, you know, robotic process automation, you could use a bunch of other stuff. Um, but, but to me, that's going to be really important to see how that innovation takes place. Uh, so those are areas just as an example of kind of if you think about fintech, uh, InsureTech where we could still continue to innovate um, and I think there's, it's still really ripe for, for disruption. If anyone wants to follow along on what you guys are investing in, what themes you guys are watching, what's the best way for them to, to follow you and Flourish Ventures? Um, you know what? You can absolutely, flourishventures.com is probably our best. You could follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. And I honestly am just so thrilled. And send me an email, emelyn at flourishventures.com would be thrilled to connect. 
Uh, and I just so appreciate what you do, by the way, Julie. Love love your coverage and really enjoy um, kind of keeping track and keeping abreast of all the trends. Oh, thank you. I very much appreciate it. And speaking of that, if anyone else wants to also follow along on what Flourish and everyone else in this space is doing, go to fintechtoday.co and we will keep you up to date. Otherwise, thank you, Emmalyn. Happy holidays. And I look forward to hearing from you again in 2022. Absolutely. You too. Take care. <laughs>